Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. All right, I think we're live. Yeah. I think we're live too. I got the notification that you are live. Did you get the notification on the Facebook? Mm, let me check. <laughs> okay, welcome everybody to Peggy's Recovery Corner. I'm here with my special guest today. This is a friend. Her name is Elle Fortner. She is in recovery and she's a mama. And today's uh, topic is actually being a parent both in addiction and out of addiction. Um, I've seen you for a while now. Elle, good. welcome to the corner, first and foremost. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you, too. Um, I know that you're on your lunch break. I'm so happy that you were able to make yourself available um, to come and talk today here. You know, I always like having uh, various people on the podcast. This is a recovery podcast that um, that looks at recovery from all different walks of life or lack thereof, They're, you know, and there's reasons that I say that part. And in the future, we will see why. Um, but today, I do know that you are a stand-up woman who is in recovery. You live in Orange County, to my understanding, right? Yes. And um, you are, how old are you, first off? Um, I'm 25 years old. Okay, I do ask a woman's age. I know sometimes they say you shouldn't. <laughs> how long are you sober? Um, I will, I'm sober for a little over two and a half years right now. My sobriety date is June 6th of 2018 or 20. Okay. Yeah. 2018. That's the math. Okay. Um, so where were you raised? Um, I was actually raised here locally in, uh, San Clemente, California, part of Orange County. Mm -hmm. Um, my mom was the, she was part, she worked in the school district. She worked at Shorecliffs middle school. Um, my stepdad worked in different housing construction companies. And so we were just a very local Orange County family. Okay. And, uh, did you have any siblings? Yes, I have. Um, I have an older brother and a younger sister. All right. And your childhood, from what you can remember, did you have a good childhood or were you happy? Were you happy go lucky? Were you a, a depressed little kid that would sit in the corner? Did you have issues? Physically, right, I had a really good childhood. We have a beautiful, my family still has a beautiful home. You know, I had my own bedroom. I had my own bed. I had everything I ever wanted. But um, emotionally, there was something disturbing about me from the very beginning. Um, when, my you say, when you say the very beginning, when is the very beginning? Like, Because, you know, I was talking to some people last night, uh, a, a person that was telling me that he suffers from a lot of depression. And I asked him, like, were you depressed in your infancy? Were you depressed in your in your childhood, like where did it really start? Um, the example I like to use, the oldest back memory I can remember is like I was six years old and I opened a lemonade stand to raise money for the seals, mm -hmm. but I had no I had no intention of actually donating any money to the seals. I like kept all the money and like went and bought candy with it. Okay, okay. Like yeah. I had some unusual behaviors as a child. Uh, do you care to elaborate? Um, I didn't like the word no. I'd like pull my own hair out of my head. And my mm -hmm. mom actually had me tested to see if I had like some kind of hormonal issues. 
because she didn't really have any understanding of what was wrong with me. And the test didn't come back that there was anything wrong with me besides the fact that I was born an alcoholic. Oh, okay. Um, when did you first start? Um, oh, okay, let, let me back up real quick before we get into the using and drinking. Uh, how were your grades? I was a straight A student. I uh, was in advanced placement classes. Like I was in classes with seniors as a freshman. I was always a step ahead of everyone in my grade. Okay, so you were very smart. On paper, yes. My actions show otherwise. Well, probably bad decisions. Smart people make bad decisions. <laughs> but, um, all right. So when did you start becoming troubled? Like when did you start um, getting in trouble? Uh, the first time I got in trouble, it was my 14th birthday. And um, my birth dad was out of town and I broke into his house to throw a birthday party for myself. And important. yes. So that was the first time I ever got in trouble. I had started drinking the year prior to that mm -hmm. and like sneaking into my parents' liquor cabinet and drinking, um, walking home from school so that I could like smoke weed or whatever. And um, but that was the first time shit kind of hit the fan, for lack of a better term. And when you would sneak into the um, liquor cabinet, did you top it off with water? Like, did you fill it back up or did you just not care? Of course. That's eventually how I got caught because they tried to put something in the freezer and it froze. There you go. So, it's, ah, the <laughs> alcohol wouldn't freeze. Okay. Exactly. So, so is it fair to say that your first, uh, around the age of 14, it started with alcohol? Yes. That's definitely fair to say. And um, were you drinking quite regularly or was it just like in partying time? Um, I mean, I would drink heavily regularly. Uh, I'm not regularly during party time. Mm -hmm. I had this perfume bottle that I like put a little bit of whiskey in and I would bring it to school with me and right. I would drink that during the day, but I wouldn't get like wasted because I was at school. I was just like trying to take the edge off. Just taking a few pulls to get nice and buzzed to go to school. Yeah. Be happy. Um, exactly. And that was at the age of 14 or 15 around that time? Yeah. What kind of stuff was going on in San Clemente during those times when you were in your adolescence? Was were, was there uh, like a status quo? Like how were the kids? Was, were you trying to fit in? Was everybody of the same type or, you know, I, I know San Clemente. I know the city. It's a cool city. It's a very beach type of city. There's different classes of people. There's the very wealthy. There's the middle class. And then there's even like, you know, like, like uh, the not middle class, like a little bit lower, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you know, there's all different types, all different people from all walks of life down in San Clemente. Uh, what, how, what, were you, what were you influenced by? So my experience in school, right, was that like I was never one of the popular girls. I was never like someone who was going to be on the cheerleading team or anything like that. Right. And I noticed that the more I did with drugs or the more I did with alcohol, the more attention it gave me. And it was like a challenge. And there were definitely like that group of kids in school where it was like you were taking ecstasy on a Tuesday during class. And like, mm -hmm. so being able to keep up with that behavior and like ditching class, to go smoke cigarettes. Like I found my little niche of people mm -hmm. and it felt like I got some kind of, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it felt like I got respect by doing things like that. I understand. I get it. I understand it all too well. I was actually going to Costa Mesa High School 
probably many years before you, but I, I get, I know that lifestyle and that was down in Orange County too. Okay. So, um, any relationships? Did you have any relationships with like people back then? Um, I mean, I did. I, uh, I like to hang out with kids that were older than me and I got into like relationships with guys in their Mm twenties. I got really heavily into the punk scene. Um, and like I said, I had my niche, you know, I was going to shows, I was hanging out with older boys. I was skipping class and doing drugs, like the very typical San Clemente dropout drug addict girl. Okay. I love it. I actually love punk rock. Like I, I grew up on a lot of punk. So I didn't know that about you, but I guess I should have guessed because uh, you kind of got that that look to you, like you were kind of hardcore. I feel like I run into people from high school in the room sometimes these days, and uh, some people I look at them and I'm like, how did you get here? Like, how did this happen to you? And yeah. I feel like nobody ever looks at me with that. You know, yeah. everyone's like, wow, thank God you made it here. You know, congratulations. No one's That's like true. surprised that my life took this turn. Right. Uh, I think I've, we've talked about this before, but like whenever I ask, like, who's your doppelganger, you see Perusa Balk, right? Is that? Yes. <laughs> she was pretty hardcore in American History X. Okay. So I want to know um, throughout your high school year. Well, first of all, what was your, like, what did you aspire to be like growing up? What did you actually want to do with your life? Did you ever have a dream as a kid? Um, yeah. I mean, I had a couple. Um, I wanted to be a mom at one point, you know? The deeper I got into my drug addiction, the farther away I stepped from that being a desire of mine. Mm-hmm. And ironically, it's what I end up being. But um, I wanted to be an author. You know, I wanted to be a psychologist. I had these like very elaborate ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And then um, did you get into drugs too throughout high school? Or was it yes. Just um, I mean... I was very heavily into like the ecstasy and the cocaine freshman, sophomore year and junior year. I found heroin and that's, uh, that's when all the other drug use stopped because this was the only drug that mattered anymore. Interesting. Okay. So you know what? It's a trip. Like you got into ecstasy and you were in the punk rock scene. Like the two don't really mix, (laughs) but, uh, but you know, I mean, whatever makes you happy. Uh, so heroin. So you were 17 when you did heroin first. Yes. Okay, now when we when we talk about heroin, was it a was it like did you start with pills or was it just somebody happened to have some heroin and you wanted to experiment or try it and you know just influenced by it and you ended up doing it? So I had some girlfriends that wanted to like take a girls trip to Palm Springs and I like had a fake ID so I tagged along to get the room. And when we were out there, we met some boys and one of the boys was shooting heroin and he said, do you want some? And I said, yeah, of course. Okay. So question for you. So, you know, a lot of kids growing up, like if they were to see a heroin addict, speaking from my own experience, uh, somebody with a needle, for example, like it almost looks like that that's a very scary drug. You know, like I knew the first time I was going to do cocaine, like everything I had learned before about cocaine, I knew it could become highly addictive. So when it came to heroin, I never thought, never, ever thought in my life, like I would do that particular drug because you always thought like that's the worst of the worst of all of the drugs. And like you could fully turn into a junkie. It's not like we hadn't heard the term junkie before we actually became one. Right. So when you saw this guy with heroin, like what was your first thought? Like, 
uh-oh, was it oh oh or all the way like I just want that. I've tried all this other stuff. Bring the heroin. Let's try that too. I mean, like, I think the more drugs I did, right, because at this point I've already done cocaine, I've already done ketamine, I've already done ecstasy. Like, as you climb up that ladder, you know, heroin seems to become, like, less and less, like, scary looking. And when I met this boy, you know, he didn't look like a junkie. You know, he was wearing true religions. He was wearing, like, a nice flannel. Like, he didn't look like someone who had lost his own his whole life because he hadn't quite yet, you know, like it was the beginning stages for all of us. And um, I feel like I had been told again and again, again, that Karen would take everything from me. And I like, didn't know what that meant. You know, no one had already heard that. I had heard that Karen will take your soul, you know, like the drug classes they make you do in school, you know, like, from the kids that were older than me that had done it. They're like, don't ever touch that one. It'll take your soul. But like, nobody told me what taking your soul looks like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a very abstract concept to me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really, it didn't seem scary when I did it. It seemed like, cool, we're going to try this. So is it safe to say that already being uh, one to experiment with so many different types of drugs, you were not of the variety of people who would be afraid to stick a needle in your body? Mm, I think when I definitely when I started drinking and smoking weed, it was something I was afraid of, you know, but as time goes by and as you catch different high after different high after different high, mm-hmm. you, you, you stop becoming scared. Right. So that boy, that young man had heroin. He did heroin. Uh, yeah. Immediately addicted. Um, it felt good. It felt like any, unlike anything I'd ever done. You know, a lot of drugs, when you do them, you're too messed up to like go out and like live your life and you have to like chill in your basement or whatever. Um, with this drug, I noticed that I could like continue to do the things I wanted to and felt good. Mm -hmm. And so the second I got back to Orange County, like I knew my older friends that were doing it and like immediately was like, Hey, I tried it. You know, it doesn't have to go on you that like, I tried it with you for the first time. I've already done it. Like hook me up, help me out. Okay. So 17 started doing heroin. Uh, how much more were you seeking after that? Like, were you immediately using regularly, like on a daily basis? So I, uh, dropped out of school around that time. So I think that definitely expedited the process because I was home alone all day. Um, my parents didn't really know what was going on. So I was stealing from them. Um, I had what felt like an unlimited access at that point. What were you stealing? Things to be able to sell off so that you could get more heroin? Exactly. Like you weren't, you didn't have money. You had to obtain items from whoever it may be. So I had like, I waitressed when I quit school, you know? And so I had like tips from that, but like you burn through those things quickly. So right. there was definitely days that I was like going through my mom's Christmas cards, trying to find money or like going through my dad's quarter jar or like, just trying to find, I used to take my sister's gift cards. That was when I felt really bad about because my yeah. sister was a little girl. She didn't have any money, but I knew she had gift cards. Right. So when those ran out, what would you do? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to hear, but um, you were you doing things that you th- thought you'd never do to be able to get money to be able to get Most out? definitely. Most definitely. You, um, you had a child at what age? Um, I found out I was pregnant when I was 20 years old. I, uh, was in Lane County Correctional Facility in Oregon. 
and they test you for pregnancy when you get admitted, and that's when I uh, was told that I was pregnant. Okay, so let's back up for a sec here. How the fuck did you end up in Oregon? (laughs) (laughs) Already shooting dope when she was 17. How, by the time were you 20, like, why why were you in Oregon of all places? I always say that, like, I uh, don't go to N.A. because I ended up pregnant. I was, like, hanging out in the rooms of N.A., and uh, I met a boy, and he was, like, getting kicked out of treatment or something and wanted me to come with him. And I was like, yeah, let's run it. You know, let's let's go. And we <laughs> we lived in Reno, Nevada for a bit. We lived in Seattle for a bit. And mm-hmm. we were in Oregon because I, I caught a case in Washington for um, forgery one. And I went down to Oregon to hide out, and I got caught up in Oregon, booked, and found out I was pregnant. Okay, so from 17 and dropping out of school, you were then kind of doing a West Coast like tour of all of the different states. Uh, were you doing meth? Yeah, a lot of that, okay. too. The second I hear forgery, I think, there it is. Was it <laughs> just because of meth? Um, no, it was – I got really clever with these concert tickets. I was making – Concert tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'd go on Ticketmaster and see what concerts were coming up, and it'd say it's like Bruno Mars and Taylor Swift are in town. You'd make fake concert tickets. Yeah, so I'd make like forty or fifty fake concert tickets for Bruno Mars and Taylor Swift and whoever was out else was out, and I'd give them to my friends, and we'd like go out and sell them all. And they uh, identical to like real tickets. Yeah, they could. Well, they were a real ticket. I like had an old Ticketmaster ticket, and I would edit all the information to make it. For that concert. You doctored up. Yeah, exactly. But when somebody would try to go and use the ticket to go get into the concert, would they get denied because the computer wouldn't read it off because it was an old ticket? Um, So I got clever enough to like go to Instagram and type in like hashtag Taylor Swift Tacoma Washington type thing. And people will post their tickets on Instagram when they get them. They'll be like, look, I got my tickets in the mail. And so I would steal those barcodes and attach them to my tickets because a lot of people would call on the ticket when they met me to make sure it was a real ticket. So I needed a real barcode. Brilliant. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) You think you've heard it all. (laughs) My God. See, see what all those smarts ended up doing for you later on in your criminal lifestyle and criminal activity. Okay. So how did you get in trouble for that? Um, so they had been building a case on me. I'd been doing this for like the course of two years, probably. And um, they pretended to be people trying to buy a ticket because I would like download text now apps and delete them every few days. And these people, they had me meet them at a gas station and they said, what are you wearing? And I said, a striped shirt. And then next thing you know, like PD comes out. So there's undercover cops out in the community that are busting people or were busting people during that time for uh, fraudulent tickets for concerts. Fraudulent concert tickets, yes. (laughs) That's what you got in trouble for, and is that why you started moving in the direction of becoming rehabilitated? Did you go to rehab between 17 and 20? No, I did not. I actually did not make it to rehab until I was um, 23 years old. So you back up. You said something about a 12-step program. Something and something and some guy. And where did you meet the guy again? Remind me. N.A. Um, When I turned 18, my mom gave me this ultimatum, like, you need to go to N.A. or you need to move out. And so I would go to N.A. And And um, and on that N.A. campus, you met a man. And that's who you had a kid with. 
Yes. Um, we were running around just doing our West Coast tour, as you put it. And um, I went on the run from Washington because they released me and I went down to Oregon to hide out. And um, I ended we were living at these people's house that had an open CPS case. And it was mentioned in the CPS case that I lived there. And because I was a fugitive of Washington, they put the pieces together and came and got me. And so um, I ended up pregnant, hanging out in jail, spending my first trimester there before they extradited me back to Washington. And they uh, released me to be homeless and pregnant on the streets of Washington. Where's the dad now? Detroit. Is he active in your kid's life? No, he is not. Okay. And then you uh, got sober at what age? I got sober at 23, 22, 22. Did you try getting sober before that a few times and stay sober for very long? Um, I tried getting Demi Lovato sober. <laughs> I uh, tried just smoking weed and drinking. I tried just doing Suboxone and meth. I tried moving to North Dakota for a little bit. And everywhere I go, there I am. It's really interesting uh, when you bring up uh, doing Suboxone and doing meth. I, I, it, it fascinates me how the addict mind thinks. Um, when somebody's not really truly serious about the recovery, they will use a substance like Suboxone to, to hold themselves off. Like they'll, they'll, they'll be on maintenance for a long time hold themselves off so that they don't have the temptation to do the opiates. But when there's no recovery, like they will just substitute one addiction for the other. And they know that the meth is going to work. The meth is not an opiate. Block, you, can do meth. you can do stimulants. You can do cocaine. You can do anything that's going to make you go fast. As opposed to like, if you're, you know, trying to prevent yourself from doing heroin or anything else, that's like an opiate that's going to make you like slow. Right. Well, so Exactly. And it's crazy. Like I can convince myself that I can like shoot up meth like a gentleman. Like that's not a valid statement. That statement's an oxymoron altogether. Like I can't shoot meth like a gentleman because gentlemen like don't shoot meth, period. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So um, I, I, it's it's fair to say that when you were doing meth and, and heroin, you were always shooting it or you're not like of the smoking variety? I'm not of the smoking variety. Have you had any health issues as a result of shooting drugs? Yes, I am currently in the process of trying to get the treatment for hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. It's actually, um, they make it really complicated to get your hands on it. I can promise they, you that. They make it complicated to get your hands on it, but from my, it's my understanding, at least in the last five to maybe seven, eight years, hepatitis C, there are cures for it, correct? Yes, there are. They just, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to prove that you're eligible for it. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of places require you to have six months of sobriety to, to start it. A lot of places require you to get blood work and ultrasounds and fiber scans to prove you're in a certain stage of it in order to get it. Mm -hmm. And so I got approved for the cure back in December, but it's March and I still haven't received it because they make it complicated. Okay, so here's my question to you, uh, and maybe this is for some people who are listening that may not know this. Whenever I hear about people shooting dope, whatever kind of dope that may be, first thing I think is, do they have hep C, right? Uh, how does, just so that, you know, educationally some people can learn, because most people that already have done that stuff know, uh, but for those that don't know, how does one get hepatitis C 
as a result of shooting intravenously any type of drugs? Um, so you get hepatitis C from contracting it most of the time from someone else who has it, you know? So when you're really strung out and you're really trying to get high, you start to not care about who you're sharing needles with or your friends will promise you up and down that they don't have it or whatever the case may be. But you could have hepatitis C and have no idea you have it and you could be passing it along. So you get it from sharing a needle with somebody who has it. Um, it's rumored that you can get it from not using clean needles, period. Like, even if you're just using it on yourself, but I don't know any scientific basis behind that. I've heard that too, and I don't know how that would even be possible, but uh, regardless of the fact, so this is something, that, and I want to back up to this. The first time that you were ever going to use use a shared needle with somebody else, did the thought cross your mind that, this could be a major risk or did you not even think about it at all? Like, did that person tell you, um, I don't have hep C or did the conversation even come up or did the thought, even if the conversation didn't come up, did the thought cross your mind that um, I'm, I'm sharing a needle with somebody right now, this could be dangerous or were you just blindly going into it, not even knowing at all? Um, I think specifically of um, we were getting loaded with a guy who had HIV at one point. And um, I remember thinking about what if I accidentally used one of his needles? Like, I really don't want HIV. Um, and it's like there's this thought that goes through your head about how horrible that would be. And there's like a moment of fear. And then it almost like kind of just faints into the background. Like the only priority when you are in that phase is like just getting loaded. And thank God that I have it. Yeah, thank God that I have it. I did not catch HIV. But during that time, all that mattered was getting loaded. And you really could have caught HIV. I mean, it was that close. It's pretty much crap you. Now, um, you said CPS, uh, you had a C open CPS case. When your kid was taken, first of all, daughter or son? Daughter. How old now? Um, she will be four in the beginning of April. And you were how old when you had her? 20? 21. 21. And the open CPS case was as a result of? Say it, it was a result of using. Um, so the case started because when my daughter was born, unfortunately, I was unable to get sober quick enough for her. Mm -hmm. And so she was born with opiates in her system. Not enough that she was detoxing or anything like that, but they were there. Um, she wasn't taken from me immediately. Like I said, she didn't have detox symptoms. They released her to go home with me under the circumstances that like I had a CPS case and there's people I would have to answer to. Right. And so for a while there, I jumped through those hoops. You know, I made it to the doctor's appointments. I had the CPS worker at the house investigating it. There was these church communities they wanted me getting involved in. And I jumped through those hoops, but I couldn't stop getting loaded. But CPS was first notified because your child was born addicted. Is that how it all started? She was so, born with traces of um, opiates in her system. Yes. And that's why they get notified. Yes. Um, CPS got aggressive. Um, there was a circumstance where me and her father had gotten in an argument. He had um, stormed off with her and taken her. And I didn't know where they went. And it was a few days before they returned. And when they returned, I called and asked for a wellness check because I didn't trust her father. Mm. And um, that's when CPS very much got aggressive. And he was actively using himself too. Yes. Okay. And so when Child Protective Services came into the picture, they took your kid away. Where'd your kid go? 
Um, so my mother, um, if you leave state with your child during a CPS case, CPS in that case has to close the case if the kid's not in the state. So I had like the bright idea to fly to California and like ask my mom to watch my daughter so that I could keep getting loaded. And I thought that that would close the case. Everything would be fine. And that's like not exactly how it worked out. My mother actually ended up with custody of my daughter. Okay. So your mom started raising your kid. Yeah. Wow. So that pushed you in the direction of getting help eventually or immediately? Um, definitely eventually. I had the bright idea to go to North Dakota and like try to reinvent myself because I didn't think I needed sobriety. I thought I just needed to like lay off the heroin and everything would be fine. I thought I just needed to like get away from her dad and everything would be fine. I had like all of these really bright ideas about what my problem was. And even though I went to North Dakota for dad and got off the heroin and did all those things, it didn't solve my problem. Mm. And oh. so I ended up getting sober about eight months later. I came back to California to go to treatment. Mm. Wow, that's heavy. You know, so you went to treatment and uh, that was what year? Um, it was 2018. It was June 6th of 2018. I went to New Directions for Women, actually, because I knew they were a mothers and children based treatment center. Um, I love I'm not huge on like advertising for treatment centers, but I love New Directions. Um, they have something really special over there. And um, did you, you want to go there in hopes of having your your kid with you in the treatment process? Yes, and um, we I ended up getting the opportunity to towards the very end, um, but eventually my stay was over there, and I had to go to sober living where I couldn't keep my kid. Hmm. You couldn't keep your kid in their sober living? Is that what you're talking about, or a different sober living? A different sober living. So New Directions does residential treatment for women with children, and they're I know there's special opportunities for a sober living type level of care, but um, at the time there was a lot of women there with a lot of kids and it was like time for me to move on. I was a scholarship, so I was a scholarship patient and um, it was definitely time for me to move on and kind of take care of myself a little bit more. You got scholarship into there? Yes. Yeah, I like that you said that you're not one to advertise for treatment, but I got to say, I've actually gone and toured New Directions. They're a nonprofit organization in Costa Mesa, California, that is all women. Um, and I'm not saying this to advertise for them. I was very, very impressed with what I saw. Very impressed. Uh, you know, huge group rooms, lunchroom, all of that. But what was really cool when I went and saw them a few years ago is there was writing on the walls that was like, you know, it was nice writing. Like it was, it was peaceful it was a tranquil tranquil environment and the coolest thing was when i went and looked at the, the women's beds on the floor next to all the beds were these little pillows and they were prayer pillows and it would help uh remind women to get on their knees and pray because you got like your life depends on it funny enough a really common thing over there is like because when i got there i didn't know what that thing was you know and that i ended up getting the opportunity to work there at one point and a lot of clients have no idea what those meal prayers are oh did they take them out maybe it, no they're still there they're underneath all the beds but a lot of clients are so not used to praying they have no idea what that thing is well, I thought it was a really brilliant idea. It's really cool to plug people into some yeah. kind of higher power, however that may be. Um, wow, well, I mean, okay, so so 
you you took it seriously on this last attempt. Obviously, you've stayed sober for a while. Um, how much is your kid in your life now? Um, I have my daughter. I have her every other weekends. I have her Mondays and Thursdays. And so that is a her, huge jump. And when you have her every other weekend, where else is she? With mom? With your mom? Yes. Okay, so partial custody. Yes. Right. Um, how does it feel to be a sober woman, a sober mother, and be able to be present in your child's life? It's a, It's definitely a trip. It's definitely a... I remember sitting in New Directions and I remember wondering, like, am I doing this to be a mom? Like, what am I doing this for? Yeah. And uh, I remember thinking, like, it doesn't matter if I'm going to be a mom. It doesn't matter if I'm going to stay sober. None of that stuff matters. Like, I just need to show up and do this today. Mm. And, like, having that attitude for so long. And then going out into sober living and, like, getting this sober freedom, right? And, like, getting sober friends and, like, people who pick you up and take you to meetings and go get pizza afterwards and, like, yeah. all the nine yards. And it's, like, I'm 22 years old and single in Orange County again, you know, like, going on dates, doing all these things. And I, like, lost sight of, like, what my wanting to be a mother, you know? As an alcoholic, even in sobriety, I'm very, very quick to be selfish. Mm -hmm. And I think I definitely... um I think I definitely lost sight sometimes of what I was doing, but luckily for me, like my mom is so awesome. And, um, I got reminders. Did your mom, all have, did your mom have you when she was really young? No, she didn't. Okay. No. Um, but my mom was a, my mom reminded me like, you need to be here on this day, you know, and I made all my dissertations and I picked up the phone every time my daughter wanted to FaceTime. And I gave money when I could give money. And I, like, did all of those actions that, like, provided me the opportunity to be a mom today. But I think the emotional process through that was a lot different than I thought it was going to be. It's difficult. Yeah. It's hard. It's got to be hard, you know. Um, but like you said, I mean, even the fact that you have her partially in your life right now, as far as custody goes, that's it's, it's huge. You made big strides. And the goal is eventually to obviously have her with you, correct? Yes. Like 100%? Uh, yes, 100%. Are you ready for that? Um, I am learning to juggle what I have right now because my life looks different when I have my daughter. Um, meetings look different. Hanging out with friends looks different. Everything looks different than it used to look. So I'm still trying to find the balance there. I understand. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I I know you because you are part of a very uh, strong group of both young and old people in in middle and south Orange County that are in recovery. It's like a full support system, a full group of people who who I gotta say take their sobriety extremely seriously. At least the majority of the members of that group really, really, really value their recovery, their sobriety. So. Uh, it touches my heart when I see someone like you, who was a lot like me, a very stubborn teenager that was, you know, for whatever reason, I'm sure we had our own traumas that took us down some pretty dark paths. Um, I believe that you were a rebel like I was a rebel. Um, and and like the, the idea of really getting sober was not in any way art like appealing. It didn't sound enticing. Nothing about it sounded realistic or like anything we wanted to even take on. Right. Like, yeah. why, why would I want to get sober? I got, I, I love getting loaded. Like when you love getting loaded and it, like it, it becomes your everything, 
like nothing else sounds good. Like that frothy, <laughs> that frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices that we talk of. Like, yes, thank you. Thank you for telling me that like that I have potential. Thank you for telling me <laughs> that I'm highly talented. Thank you for telling me that I could move mountains and I could do all kinds of things. But right now, I'm getting my fix. And when I'm getting my fix, nothing you can tell me is going to, you know, quit trying to, like wrap it up in, in a in a bow in a box. Like I, I I'm I'm busy. Like I'm I'm getting my group up. But to be able to see you at such a young age take this thing by the horns and and transform and change your life. And uh, you know, you're you're working like in a you're working in the field, right? You're doing like this is you're doing good work. You're staying sober. You've taken your sobriety seriously. I don't believe you're in relapse mode. You don't sound like it. You don't look like it. You you know when I asked um to have uh various uh, women on the podcast, it's because uh, I always take interest in in uh, hearing people's stories, whether they be young, old, uh, celebrities, not celebrities, doesn't matter. I don't think that addiction uh, in any way, shape or form discriminates against who, uh, you know, who, who's using drugs. Like addiction is, is ruthless. It's cunning. It's baffling. It's powerful. And when it has you, it has you. And to see that you've actually like broken out of the clutches of addiction that that it once had upon you like you're you're on a good path like you're you're good people l like i always uh i i enjoy when i see you like whether it be on facebook or even in person like you're good and i know that you help a lot of people and that, that you're really plugged into the recovery scene so um you know it's it, again it can't be easy trying to uh actually be a mother when you probably never really intended for that to happen this early in life but uh, I love that you're stepping up and taking it seriously. And, and I wish you nothing but the best with, with, um, with what you are going to be experiencing in your motherhood as you get your daughter to be closer and closer to you in your life. No, it, it, it continues to be incredibly rewarding. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I often wonder to myself, like, there's so many different uh, people that, that have addictions. And then when they have kids, you know, sometimes their kids become carbon copies of them. And sometimes they're, kids become like polar opposites of what they are, depending on how the kid is brought up or raised or their own ideologies that, that they, they create. You know, uh, I've seen a lot of alcoholics and addicts who their kids have never seen them drunk um, or, or high. And sometimes their kids never even go down that path. They do something completely different, have a whole different lifestyle. And then sometimes the kids do exactly the same thing. So I often, uh, I used to have this counselor in rehab that, whenever there was uh, clients in our rehab setting that had kids and these people were still thinking about using or drinking or not really serious about the recovery, he would often tell them, um, you have kids now, like party's over. Just so you know, (laughs) party's over. It's time to focus on yourself so that you can be there for your kids. And, and, um, and I commend you for actually doing that with your life and being the stand up woman that I know you to be. Thank you, Pej. And thank you so much again for having me today. For sure. If you have any kind of message that you'd like to put out in the universe as we close this up, please say whatever you need to say, because I know, you know, you might be able to help, you know, if just one person, that would be wonderful, but anybody and everybody. The most important thing I heard when I got to sobriety and I looked at other women who had their kids um, was I heard again and again and again, the kids always come back. And I heard stories about how the kids came back and they never came back in the most conventional sense. But they always came back. And that was important to hear because as a mother in early sobriety, hopeless feeling, and it feels like I might as well just give 
on being a mom and like go get loaded again. But um, the kids always come back. And I think that's an important message. I love that you say that. I actually have a friend right now that's going through some really hard times. He made some bad choices. He ended up going to prison. He made bad choices with the person that he was in a relationship with, that they had a kid with. And right now, um, one of the family members that it was actually, you know, the grandmother took over the child's life and pretty much is keeping all, actually all of his kids away from him. And you're right. One of them actually is trying to come back and be in his life. It's really hard on him emotionally, but I keep telling him and emphasizing to him over and over again, stay sober, stay sober, trust the process, let it work itself out. It'll happen when it needs to happen, whether it's in God's time or just the way the universe is flowing, just stay sober. Cause if you go and you, you get loaded again, you're going to fuck up the process and, and, you know, prolong any type of time in your life where you may be able to redevelop a relationship with your kid in your life. So um, I love you very much, Ellen. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you for coming to Peggy's Recovery Corner, and I hope to see you again soon. I love you too. Thank you, Pej. Bye. Bye.